Well, just over 500 years ago, a revolution was sparked, a revival that changed the world. Uh, it was a, a gospel revolution uh, ignited on October 31st, 1517, when a German monk named Martin Luther uh, nailed his 95 theses, 95 theological statements uh, to the door of the church at Wittenberg. Now, as many of you know, this singular act was the spark that ignited an enormous fire, an enormous fire that spread through all of Europe and around the world, and it's the fire that we know today as the Protestant Reformation. Now, many years later, uh, Luther would recount uh, much of what happened in those early days. He would, he would write about uh, what fueled this gospel revolution. And this is what he wrote. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. You see, it wasn't political tactics uh, military might, great wealth. It was none of that that changed the world, but instead it was the very Word of God. And that's still God's primary means of changing the world today, as well as changing us. As one commentator states, Hebrews four twelve to 13 captures this truth in one of the most profound passages in the Bible, it is one of the best summaries of what makes God's Word so special. And that's our text this morning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 12 and 13. And before we hear that part of God's Word, uh, let's go to Him in prayer. Well, Lord God, we do come to You this morning, and we ask once again that You would awaken our hearts to your word. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we might see Jesus, the living word. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And so now hear the word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And this is God's Word. Well, two questions this morning. Uh, two questions. Uh, what do we learn about God's Word in these verses? And why are these verses here in this particular passage? And so what do we learn about God's Word and why are these verses here? And so, of course, we're going to begin with the first question. 
what do we learn about God's word in these verses? Well, biblical scholar Mike Kruger uh, summarizes it by pointing out that we learn three fundamental things about God's word. We learn that it's personal, it's powerful, and it's penetrating. God's word is personal. And you know, if you, if you think about it, 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 it's so easy to view the Bible as simply just being another book. A book with, with maybe helpful information about figuring out life or some maybe looking at it as a religious textbook, a religious reference book, important facts. So easy to view it that way, but, but when we merely look at the Bible like that, then it can easily seem like any other book that's old. It could end up seeming a bit boring or even antiquated to us. And yet what we learn here is that it is actually alive. Yes, it is old, ancient words, and yet alive today. As it says in verse 12, the word of God is living It's living. Theologian John Frame says it well. When we encounter the word of God, we encounter God himself. His word indeed is his personal presence. Whenever God's word is spoken, read, or heard, God himself is there. You see, an encounter with God's word is an encounter with the living God. God. And the Holy Spirit awakens our hearts to see God, to see Jesus, the living word. Now, if you go to the library, let's say you want to check out a book about an interesting person. Maybe you pick Princess Diana, a lot of books about her. And so you you get that book, you take it home and you read it and you can learn lots of, of amazing, interesting facts about a very intriguing woman. But one thing that you will never do is you will never actually meet her personally in the pages of that book. But you see, it is very different with the Bible, completely different, because yes, you can learn a lot lot about God, and we should, but also you can get to know Him personally. Because you see, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God manifests himself in the very words of Scripture. And so God's word is personal. Well, it's also powerful. God's word is powerful. We read that it's not only living, but also active. The word of God is living and Active. Okay, and the, and the word translated active. Uh, in, in Greek, the word is energes, which, as you can tell, that's where we get our English word energy. And what this is saying is that God's word is actively full of energy, it is strong and powerful. And so you see, God's word doesn't just say things, it actually does things, it accomplishes things things. I mean, think about what the word does. Uh, Kruger looks at the Bible and, and says this, just as a brief summary. At the very beginning, God spoke the world into existence. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he used the power 
and energy of God's word to rebuke the lies of the devil. Then there are Jesus's miracles performed by speaking. Lazarus come out was a divine decree. And Jesus calmed the storm by simply commanding the waves, be quiet and stay quiet. And they did. Well, God's word still does things like that today, both in the world around us and in us as well. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the people of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through, through the living and enduring word of God. And the prophet Isaiah records God saying this, that my word goes out of my mouth and shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You see, it's through God's word that we are able to be changed, that we are able to grow in grace and godliness. It's through God's word that we are convicted, corrected, comforted, converted. Now, many of you know the name George Whitfield, a great preacher of the 18th century. And he had a group of followers, but the particular group that I'm thinking of right now were not supporters who loved to hear him preach and supported him. Uh, no, these were is a group of detractors known as the Hellfire Club, and they liked to hound and heckle him. Now, one of them was an, a particularly excellent impersonator of Whitfield. You know, he, he just had, had the cadence down, had the voice, had the mannerisms down, and it was so good, as I was reading about it, I'm envisioning that he'd be on SNL today, just nailing the mocking impersonation. And so one day, as he is mocking the great preacher, speaking the very words from one of Whitfield's sermons, all of a sudden, in the middle of it, he was overtaken by the word of God. He just stopped, he sat down, convicted, and was converted on the spot. God's word accomplishes what he sends it out to do. God's word is powerful. And clearly, it's also penetrating. God's word is penetrating. It can cut through the most calloused of hearts, believer and unbeliever alike. But how can it do this? Well, what does it say? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay, the image of a double-edged sword here most likely refers to uh, the Roman short sword, uh, which was, uh, was called a gladius. It's where we get the name gladiator. And Roman soldiers were armed with it. It was sharp enough to, to cut through armor in close combat. Well, similarly, God's word is sharp enough to cut through armor to penetrate the hardest substance on earth, 
the human heart. Again, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word pierces. It penetrates. It goes into the deepest recesses of a person's being. And as it cuts, it it discerns or judges. It exposes what's really inside those deepest recesses of the heart. Yes, it's like a surgeon's knife, a, a surgeon's scalpel, razor sharp and designed to cut. Designed to cut for the purpose of healing, for the purpose of saving lives. Tim Keller puts it like this. How does a surgeon bring healing to your body if it has a tumor in it? The surgeon spills your blood, cuts you open, because that's your only path to health. How does a therapist help a a downcast, depressed person? Well, often she does it by bringing up the past, getting the patient to confront painful memories and terrible feelings. The surgeon and therapist often have to make you feel worse before you can feel better. Now, I realize that that none of us like to go under the knife. I mean, nobody likes that. But it can save your life. And so take up the Bible. Read God's Word. And as you read His Word, ask Him to work on you, to work in you. Because even if you don't think a knife is sharp, if it is, it can still cut you. And through the power of the Spirit, the great physician knows how to cut deeply, to go in and to cut out the cancer of sin and bring healing to any human heart. And so we learn here in these verses that God's Word is personal, it's powerful, and it's penetrating. But why? Why are these verses here in this particular passage? Well, that leads to our next question. And so lastly, our other question, why are these verses here? Why are they in this part of this particular passage in the book of Hebrews? Well, it's helpful if we remember the the larger context, and in particular where we've been recently. And so remember that the writer of Hebrews has been talking about rest, has been talking about God's rest for God's people. In fact, has been doing so for most of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 up to where we are today. And if you go back one verse from our passage, verse 11, uh, we are exhorted to do something. What is it? We are exhorted to strive, to strive to enter God's rest. And so what we see there is that effort is involved. But why? Well, because life is hard. 
I mean, the Christian life can be very hard. Uh, Yes, it can be wonderful, exciting, fulfilling, but it can also be exhausting, disheartening, and discouraging. And as Kruger points out, if we're going to make it through the desert and to the promised land, it will take effort. It'll take great effort. But before we go further, we need to be reminded of a very important distinction to make. Very important to make the distinction because there is a big difference between effort and earning. Big difference between effort and earning. Okay, so you think about salvation. The whole of salvation, the fullness of salvation. Remember, we earn nothing because Jesus earned everything. I like the way that uh, Dallas Willard puts it. He says, grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. And so, again, we we earn nothing because Jesus paid it all. We were saying that earlier. Jesus paid it all. The race has already been won by him for us. However, we're still called to run the race, aren't we? The race of life. The race of faith. And running the race takes effort. And it takes an effort that is grounded in grace. And so in our effort, in our striving to enter God's rest, we are given God's word. We're given God's word to to work in us, to grow us, to to strengthen us, to encourage us forward. We are given God's word to to direct us, to keep us on the right path and to to keep us from falling away. So we read uh, verse 13 that all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, as God's personal and powerful word penetrates our hearts, we're stripped naked and exposed before him. Okay, God's word exposes who we really are. What does it say? Discerning, discerning or judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart, revealing what is inside. And so not only is God's word the primary way that we get to know God, But it is also the primary way that we really get to know ourselves. When we read the Bible and let it deeply uh, penetrate into our hearts, we end up seeing things that we haven't seen before. Uh, We begin to to, to better understand the, the sin and brokenness in our lives and how it affects our character and actions and thus the way that it affects our relationships with other people. And though unpleasant, it's good to have the cancer exposed so that it can be cut out and healing can take place. But again, who likes to go under the knife? Nobody. None of us like that. And so what do we do instead? We pretend. Oh, we pretend that it's not that bad. Just like many of us do with many illnesses. Oh, it's not that bad. It's going to go away. We do that so that we can avoid the doctor and avoid the scalpel. 
In other words, what we do is we cover ourselves in fig leaves just like Adam and Eve back in the garden. Okay, we try to hide who we really are. Uh, We try to hide uh, from others, uh, from ourselves, from God. We try to cover ourselves with the fig leaves of self-justification, trying to convince ourselves and others that we're okay. I'm okay. But here's the thing about fig leaves. They don't make very good clothes, do they? I mean, fig leaves don't hold up very well, and so much of the time we're, we're actually self-conscious. We're worried that our fig leaves are going to fall off and we're going to be exposed to naked. And so what we need to do is we need to go to the great physician, just as I am, just as we really are, and to ask him to cut into our hearts and bring healing to our souls. And so in that way, the fig leaves are able to come off. And it's freeing because what we're able to then do is to find rest under the cover of Christ's righteousness. Being clothed in the robes of his sturdy, lasting righteousness. So do you remember the classic movie Chariots of Fire? And even if you haven't seen it, you probably know the the music, the theme music. I'm reminded of it quite often because Dennis has it as a ringtone on one on his phone. So I do think of Chariots of Fire quite often. But you know, if if, if you've seen it, and if you haven't, you need to. But it's it's a great story, a story of two British uh, track athletes. Uh, they're preparing for and then enter into the 1924 Olympics. And what we see in these two men, we see that one of them is trying so hard to prove himself. He is so unsure and is trying to assure himself that he matters. He's, he's, he's a tortured soul. Well, and then the other, the other one is, is, is a man who, who runs with, with great joy and pleasure. He's, he's resting in the assurance of God's love and delight in him through Christ. And so the one man, uh, Harold Abrahams, in one of the scenes he's preparing for the 100-meter sprint, and he says this, In one hour's time, I will be back on that track again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor Four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? Will I be able to do it? And then the other, Eric Little, in a scene where he is speaking to his sister about his running. He says this, and you probably already know the quote. God made me for a purpose. He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Both men exerting great effort. One man exerts great effort in an an attempt to prove himself, to earn acceptance. And the other exerts great effort while resting in God's acceptance through Jesus. 
Because you see, God's word reveals where our striving is grounded. Is it rooted in self? Is it rooted in self-justification? Or rooted in resting in Christ and his justification for us, of us? So why does all this matter anyway? Why does it matter? Well, in the words of another PCA pastor, it matters because if you don't deal with those things in your heart that are tripping you up, then you might find yourself like the Israelites, doubt turning into disbelief and eventually turning away from the living God. God's word does surgery on your soul in order to prevent you from losing your way, from losing hope, and missing out on the rest that God provides. And so we are given God's word for the race, for the race of life. We are given God's word so that we are able to run that race is those who are fully known and fully loved by God. Knowing that on the cross, Jesus was naked and exposed for us so that we might be fully clothed in him. We're given God's word that we might become more and more convinced of and healed by the gospel of grace. And so to quote the author of Hebrews, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but rather go to Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, true rest. And one day, full rest forever. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord of rest. We thank you for your great passion in love toward us, for becoming naked and exposed and taking our sin and shame upon yourself. And all so that we might be forgiven and accepted and clothed in your righteousness. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word that is living and active and your word that is at work within us. Even when we don't feel it, even when we don't sense it. That you are at work through your word in us and that you are faithful to complete that great work which you have begun. And so we ask that you would please convince our hearts more and more of your mercy and grace and help us to rest in you as we strive by faith through this difficult and dark world. Amen.